Well, it's good to see you again. You know, um, again, I'm, I'm Steve. And if you're just joining us, we have been studying as a church in the book of 1 Samuel. And this morning we are in 1 Samuel 14. And, and the book of 1 Samuel is kind of in the first fifth of your Bible. So if you just kind of flip around towards the, the beginning of your Bible, yeah, it's, it's, um, you'll see First and Second Samuel. They're both pretty long books, and you should be able to find us. We're in First uh, Samuel 14. And I hope, you know, last week we took a break for uh, Good Friday and Easter. And I, I just, I don't know if you were able to join us um, as we worship together um, or were, were other places, but I just trust that you were blessed as you, like, reflected on, like, everything that God accomplished for us in the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. And, and um, this morning we're, um, is, continues to be about him as we go to his word in the book of 1 Samuel. And, you know, if you're joining us, like, and you haven't been here, I, I probably need to spend, spend a little bit of time taking it, bring us up to speed of where we have been as a church and where, like, the story finds us. If um, the story of 1 Samuel is the story of kind of the establishment of the monarchy in the nation of Israel, oh, in my title, so you're not going to be distracted. Is that awesome or what? doesn't have a lot of meaning other than the fact that this is a text where I could come up with a title like that, and so uh, why not, right? So if you're looking for a band name, Bloodshed and Honey, right? It's like a metal band with like my wife singing or something. Um, that could be awesome, right? She's the honey part, so... For those, of you that were, for those of you that were judging me, right, so uh, you'll understand why I picked that title later on, but it's mostly just because I thought it sounded cool. Um, but, you know, the story of 1 Samuel was, was that, the, that the nation of Israel were, con- were constantly being plagued by, by invading armies because they didn't have a centralized government. And, and what they didn't realize was that their, their problem wasn't a government problem. It was a heart problem. And it was always because of their disobedience to the Lord and the fact that they would all worship every other god besides him that, that God would bring these these nations in as to discipline them as a nation. And finally they got fed up with the cycle that they were on again, not taking responsibility for themselves. And they, they asked for a King and, and God warned them like, Hey, you don't want a King because a King's going to be a bummer. And that's the paraphrase. And, and they said, no, we want a king like all the other nations have a king. So he appointed him a king by the name of Saul. And, and the story of Saul so far has been one where Saul like, has demonstrated kind of over and over and over again that he wasn't a man who was going to like, honor the Lord in his role. And he was going to kind of just pursue his own ends. And, and we saw when we were gathered two weeks ago that, that Saul, that, that there, were, there was this crisis that Saul was faced with. His son Jonathan had, a, had attacked a Philistine outpost in Israel. Like Israel was like uh, an occupied nation under the Philistine like armies. And his son had attacked a, a Philistine outpost, had a victory there. And the Philistine response to that was like, overwhelming and massive. Like they put together, uh, I think, I, I, I think I could even say based on what the text is going to show us today, their entire military force brought to bear on the nation of Israel. And, and the text tells us that they had, they had 30,000 chariots, they had 6,000 horsemen, and they had men that were so many, they, they couldn't even be numbered. This was a massive army that came up to meet Israel. And I have a map, my fancy maps from two weeks ago. We're going to continue them. There was no, there was no maps like uh, that I could find that were very effective. And so this is marginally effective and I made it myself. That's my handwriting. Um, 
And this massive Philistine army came to the city of Michmash, that's, that, that's there in the red, um, near the pass of Michmash. And, and Saul, knowing that like, this massive army was coming up against them, he tried to muster his own army. And he started with a standing army of 3,000 people. And as they were kind of waiting for Samuel to come and, and to pray for them before they went into battle, like, uh, the, the fear of the Philistines was so great that his army was de- deserting left and right. Like if the, It says that they were hiding in the, in the holes in the ground. They were fleeing across the Jordan River um, to get away from the Philistine army. And over the week that he was waiting for Samuel, his army went from 3,000 people down to 600 people. So at the end of his efforts to muster an army, he was only left with 600. And the story ended last week with him going to Gibeah, um, the, the army of Israel there in the yellow of 600 people, which is only like two miles from Michmash. And so you can see like they could see this, the, the, the armies of the Philistines from there. And we're told in, back in chapter 13 that they could see the raiding parties going out. Um, and they were helpless to do anything because they were simply an army of 600 against this, like, this massive army. And, and it, it even gets worse at the end of chapter 13 because what we find out at the end of chapter 13 is that, is that because of the Philistine occupation, they had outlawed blacksmiths. And so the, the people of Israel were unable to make weapons. And so out of those 600 people, there was only two swords and everybody else was there with like scythes and axes and hoes and pitchforks, right? So it's this ragtag group of like brave or foolish Israelites with pitchforks and axes against like this overwhelming like force um, with like 30,000 chariots. Just the chariots outnumbered them. 50 to 1, right? Not even including the men. And, and we ended the story last week with this kind of ominous, and we're, ominous, ominous words where it says the Philistine garrison went to the pass of Michmash. It's at the end of chapter 13. And so the G there represents the garrison. And, and, um, and so we're going to see like God's deliverance of the nation of Israel in this. And we're going to see, really, as we go through this story, a contrast between Jonathan, Saul's son, and Saul, the king of Israel. And one of the themes that's kind of woven through this is foolishness. And I've got two points this morning. Um, is that the first part in the first 14 verses is the foolish plan and the power of God. Like this plan that Jonathan ends up coming up with to, to see if God would deliver them is just complete lunacy. Um, but it's in that plan that we see God's power at work. And then you see the foolish man, Saul, and God responding to him with complete silence. I'm at the end of the story. And, and uh, it's an important, it's an important uh, passage for us today because I think all of us, as we're faced with like, problems in this life, crises in this life, there's this temptation. Like, are, are we going to trust the word of God and trust in the Lord himself even when it doesn't seem like that's going to pay off? Even when that seems like kind of foolishness or like maybe I'm not doing anything or maybe it's not the right path to go. Or are we going to kind of just go down the route that we've always gone and trusted our own resources and do our own thing apart from God? Is God relevant to our like crises today? And can we trust him when he tells us to do something that doesn't completely make sense to us? You know, is what the story is going to kind of play out for us in this grand scale of this battle. So please stand with me as we read God's word. I'm going to read verses, chapter 14, verses 1 through 6 to get us started. And then I'll pray. And then we'll get into our text together this morning. This is God's word for his church. Now the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come, let us cross over to the Philistines' garrison that is on yonder side. But he did not tell his father. 
And Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men. And Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest, wore, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. And between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp crag on one side and a sharp crag on the other side. And the name of one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sena. And one crag rose on the north, opposite of Michmash, and the other on the south, opposite of Geba. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of, the, of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for just your faithfulness to your people and that you are at work in the world today. And I would just um, ask you that you would work this morning, too, and and the um, kind of weakness of what we have to offer up to you as your your people and that your spirit would just preside over our time and that we would be built up and love you more because of the time we invest today. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, as we, as we get into this story, again, like, you can put the map back up that we just had. Um, the, you know, as we, as we get into this story, like, the, the, I mean, this is a hopeless situation. That's kind of where we ended our story last week. This is a hopeless situation, 600 against this, un, you know, 600 ill-equipped Israelites against this entire army. And yet Jonathan, like, they're waiting there, like, unable to do anything. And what we had seen last week is that the, the Philistines had gone north and east and west, and they hadn't attacked south yet. And right at the end of the chapter, there was this kind of, like, ominous thing that they were securing the pass of Michmash and that they were probably about to attack. And what we find out is that, is that there's these different characters of the story introduced to us. We have, we have Jonathan, Saul's son, and he's, his attitude is like, hey, let's go over to the other side and see what's going on with the Philistines. Like he's telling his sword bearer that. So that's Jonathan. And we're told that, John, that Saul's sitting like, like doing his king thing, you know, in the town of Gibeah. So we know that's where the army is. And, and then we're introduced to the priest who's wearing the ephod, which will come into play in a little bit. And, and the we're given the genealogy of the priests, and if you've been with us in our, in our study of First uh, Samuel so far, you realize that this, it's pretty unlikely that this priest is going to be able to do much good because of, like, uh, he, he's descendant from Phineas and um, Eli, and that whole line is just kind of a bummer of a line as far as priests go. So there's kind of an ominous thing here that maybe, like, you know, Saul's priest there isn't all that he's made out to be. And then and this, it's important, it's, it's repeated twice in verse 1 and at the end of verse 3, that neither Saul nor the people knew that Jonathan was going to go. Like Jonathan's just going out on his own, and no one knows that he's leaving. And then the next map shows that he leaves from the army of Israel, and he heads up to the pass of Michmash, where, 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 where the author describes the pass for us in pretty good detail. He says that there's a crag on one side. The actual word in the Hebrew means a tooth, and a tooth on the other side. Um, and they're, they're named. It's like, this, it's like the jaws of like an animal that, that Jonathan's coming up to, and that the garrison of the Philistines, probably 500 men, you know, some, some kind Commentators think the entire army went to the pass of Michmash. Some people think just a contingent of, of them went to the pass of Michmash. I'm, I'm inclined to think that just like a garrison, like 500 of the uncounted multitude went to the, secure the pass. And that's where Jonathan goes to check out what's going on with the Philistines. And, and uh, he comes up with this crazy, crazy plan. Look what he says um, in verse 
in verse 6. He says, come and let us cross over. He's going to actually go over there and meet them to the garrison of the uncircumcised. What he's saying by using that term, he's like, we're, we're the people of God. Like God has like entered into covenant with us and promised to us. He hasn't done that with them. In fact, they are oppressing us, and God has de- promised to deliver us from our oppressors. So let's go on over there because it doesn't matter to God when he wants to deliver us how many people we have. It's irrelevant to God how big his army is. And so the two of us are just as good as a huge army. Do you see his comment there? Like, we're talking 500 and we're, and, and like, which is just part of like this uncounted multitude. And Jonathan's like, the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. You know, it's such a great statement of trust. You know, it's not presumption. Like Jonathan's faith here isn't presumption because he doesn't say, he's not doing anything weird. Like I'm claiming the victory today in Jesus name. Like he's not doing that. What does he say? Perhaps the Lord will work for us, right? It's not a guarantee. I mean, so he knows this isn't presumption on Jonathan's part where, where uh, he, he he's, he's confident that God will do it. He knows that he's confident that God can do it. He knew that, that God had made promises to his people that he would deliver them and that he had even promised that he would rescue them from the Philistines through his father. We'll see that in a little bit later. And that, and that he also knew it was irrelevant to God how many people they had. And so he was willing to, out of his confidence in God's promises to his people, out of his confidence in God's ability to deliver, his confidence that God is active and working in the world to that day, that he's relevant to what's going on and the crisis that Jonathan's facing, he was willing to take some action. And, and this is the action that he chose to take. Look what he says. Um, the, the armor bearer, he seems like a good sport. Verse 7, and the armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, turn yourself, and here I am to do according to everything, that's in, that, everything that you desire. Like, I'm on board, man. Let's go do it, right? So I'm, I'm like, I love that, right? So it's armor bearer. We don't even know his name. Some kid. He's a young man. Then Jonathan said, verse 8, Behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal, reveal ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be a sign to us. Think about this for a second. This is a bad plan from start to finish, okay? It's foolishness. Like, uh, here's a picture of the pass at McMash today. I've got a photo of it. Thank you. I'm I'm like Mr. Multimedia the last couple weeks. You guys should appreciate this. This is the pass of McMash, and and this is 3,000 years after, like, these events happened. I I can only imagine what those cliffs would have looked like with 3,000 years less erosion. But this is the pass of McMash, and so you've got a garrison of 500 Philistines, like, camped out on top of this hill on your right. And you've got Jonathan and his armor bearer probably like laying in the bushes, like spying on him um, on, the, on the left. And Jonathan's plan is this. Let's go down into the bottom of the ravine and we'll like reveal ourselves to him. They're like, hey, right? Like they completely lose the element of surprise, right? Like they, they just completely, all concealment, everything. They're exposed and trapped down in the bottom of this valley. We'll reveal ourselves to them. And, we'll, and, and if they say to us, like, hey, wait there until we get there. Then we'll know that God hasn't given them into our hands. But if they say to us, climb up here, um, then we'll know that God has. Like, if I was Jonathan, I would have rearranged that one. Because it's like, not only is, is revealing themselves to the Philistines a foolish move, but if you're going to make a test, make them come down to you, right? Like, he's like, no, we'll climb up to them. 
on, uh, on this hill. We'll climb up to them. And, and so not only are we going like, to be like, completely outnumbered 501, not only are we going like, to completely lose the element of surprise, but we're going to have to climb up this cliff to get to them. It's foolishness. Right? And so, the, so they come to... They come to, uh, to, to, to the plan and, and start here in verse 11. And when both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes and where they've hidden themselves. So they begin to mock them. Like, oh, they're like little animals coming out of their holes because they've been hiding out. We found out in chapter 13 in the holes. Verse 12. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will tell you something. It's actually a little idiom in the, in the Hebrew. It's kind of like... Hey, come on up here and we'll teach you a thing or two. That's kind of what they're saying. And then look at Jonathan and his armor bearer's response. I just love this. Um, uh, Verse 12. So the armors of the garrison hailed Jonathan and said, Come up to us and we will teach you a thing or two. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Like, it's insanity, right? Like, he looks at his armor bearer. I can just see him like, Yes! Right? (laughs) We're going to go do this thing. They high-five. They're pumped. Like, there is zero hesitation in Jonathan, right? There is zero concern, it seems like. And they're excited. This is ex- this, they're excited on this thing. Why? Because they believe that God is relevant and at work in the world, and they are getting on board with what God had promised to do. They had, they had gone to the Lord and asked for a sign, and he had given it to them. I'm not, I'm not sure, certain that... We're supposed to do the same thing. Like if you're coming up against a, like a bunch of 500 like thugs from New Jersey, um, you could try that, see how it works for you. But I'm not certain that that's meant to be like normative on how you discern the God's will. Like you don't see that as a pattern established in the scriptures that we're always supposed to follow. But what we do know about Jonathan is this: like he knew he he knew that God w- was relevant today, right? He knew that God was relevant to the crisis that we were facing. He knew that God was going to stand by His people. He knew that God could save through two people just as much as he could have saved through a huge army. And so his faith that was fueled by all of that that he knew, like, moved him to action. He actually did something. Now, I think there's something important for us here when we think about, when we think about faith. Like, and when we think about, because we're like, man, I just wish I knew something specific like that that God wants me to do. Anybody ever feel that way? You know, and the reality is this, is like the Bible is full of things that God wants you to do, right? He wants you to be a part of his community of people. He wants you to be serving. He wants you to be taking steps of faith to reach out to your neighbors. He wants you to do all of these things. Why? Because he is relevant and he is working in the world to save people today. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the apostle Paul is speaking and he says this. He says, and this is an amazing phrase at the beginning, and working together with him, Think about that for a second. Paul says, like, I am working together with God himself. I'm on board with what God is doing. We also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't just take God's grace and let it dead end with you, he's saying. Like, if you've received God's grace, if you're part of his people, he's at work in the world. And he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. I helped you. Behold, now is this acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. That's the basic message that was going to Jonathan, like from God. Now is the day, Jonathan. 
go up there and attack the Philistines, right? And the message to us is like God is right now today is saving people. He's accomplishing his purposes. And, and oftentimes I think we, we, we don't believe that God is at work. We don't believe that today is the day of salvation. We don't believe that there's power in some things that the world would call foolishness. We'll talk about that later. And we don't do anything. We're sitting back under the pomegranate tree with Saul when Jonathan and his armor bearer are out doing something in this valley with this cliff in front of them. Look what happens next. Verse 13, and Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet. Do you see that in verse 13? After seeing the picture, you understand why. He's doing the first technical rock climbing in in recorded biblical history, recorded history here. He climbed up on his hands and feet, which again, I I tried rock climbing one time. I was up on this rock face and I kind of got scared and I was like exhausted trying to figure out what to go next. And my son-in-law was teaching me like, well, you can just step down because you're like two feet off the ground. (laughs) Right? And I was bleeding from my two-foot climb. We gave ourselves pirate names, and mine was Rock Scab. (laughs) Jonathan climbs up this cliff, like uh, up this crag. It was probably even higher then to go engage the Philistines, hands and feet, and his armor bearer with him. They get to the top, verse... Verse uh, 14, and the first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, was about 20 men within about a half a furrow in an acre of land. So Jonathan and his armor bearer get up there with completely losing the lack of surprise. And, and he, well, I'll go on. And the, uh, Oh, verse 13, they climbed up and, and they fell before Jonathan. His armor bearer put some, of the, some to death after him, and there was 20 people. So Jonathan gets up there, exhausted after the climb. There's this whole garrison of 500 men, and he engages them. And in about, I think it's about a half an acre. I don't, no one's really sure. Like about the, a little bit bigger than a city lot, you know, in the distance of like a city lot, maybe, maybe two city lots. Like he slays 20 Philistines, and he puts the entire garrison of the Philistines to rout, right? Like they're just fleeing before Jonathan and his, and his sword bearer. And, and like some of them that fell, like the sword bearer just had to like, like put him to death, you know. And there's this massive rout of the Philistine garrison happening. Like God was going to deliver his people and he doesn't need a huge army to get it done. He, he's not obligated to save by many or by few. And, and in fact, I think one of the things Jonathan understood was that, is that, God doesn't think about our problems in the same way that we think about our problems. And to him, there's easy solutions. In fact, not only is he routing the Philistines, but in, at the end of verse 15, we find out that, 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 the, that the earthquake, there's, God sent this earthquake, it says in verse 15, and there was a trembling in the camp. I think that's in the camp of the Philistines and in the field and among all the people. I think that's so like everybody's feeling this earthquake. Um, even the garrison of the raiders trembled in the earthquake so that it became a great trembling. So there's this huge earthquake that's happening, uh, like in, kind of in response to Jonathan beginning to rout the Philistines. And, and um, you know, and Jonathan slays 20 of them in this half acre. But 20 is a long way from a whole army, right? It's a great victory, but there's still more of the story. So we're going to circle back here for application towards the end. But let's press on to our second point this morning because... Uh, 
because we're going to see like Saul's response contrasted with Jonathan, the foolish man, and the silence of God. And, and our, our attention is brought back now to Gibeah in verse 16. Look what it says. I'll just read 16 and I'll stop at some point. Now Saul's watchman of... Saul's watchman in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went here and there. And Saul said to the people who were with him, Number now, and see who has gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Then Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God was at that time with the sons of Israel. And it happened while Saul talked to the priest that the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. And so Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Now, so our attention is brought back to Gibeah. And what happens in Gibeah is Jonathan is routing the Philistines before him. And this earthquake happens like the watchmen look and they look at the camp of the Philistines and it says that they're melting away. And it says, and they're running like to and fro. I can't remember what exactly mine said, but something like that. They're running all around. Like there is chaos in the camp of the Philistines. So as they're looking on, like the Philistines are like retreating. They're running. There's just like chaos. And so Saul's like, well, I don't think we attacked them. Find out who's missing from our camp, right? And so they do roll call, and they find out that Jonathan and his sword bearer or shield bearer are the only ones that are missing. And so Saul's like, oh, okay. Like, I wonder what they're doing, right? And so he calls the priest over, and this is where, like, things get a little bit murky here, and without us understanding the history, he calls the priest, because in Deuteronomy, like, the, the law of God says, before the armies of Israel were to go attack a nation, that they were, they were to pray and seek God's, like, blessing before they went. And so Saul calls the priest here, and, and there's something about, like, the, the, what was the thing that, I'm having a brain freeze, the thing that he wears, the the ephod, right? So there's, uh, and again, lots of biblical history behind this, but the ephod had these things called, I don't even know how to pronounce them, umim and thumim or something like that. And they were inside the breastplate and it was a, and the priest would pray to the Lord and then seek God, like questions from the Lord and the, and they would somehow use the umim and thumim to discern God's will. It was just part of like the old Testament um, ritual. And so he brought the priest here to do that. And I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it all is that the priest was praying for the nation of Israel before they were to go into battle. And, and, it, and what's, what's really critical for us is what happens here in verse 19. And it happened while Saul talked to the priest that the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. What's going on there is that the, the priest is doing his priestly thing and he's praying and Saul keeps looking over at the Philistine army and it keeps getting more, more and more chaotic and more and more chaotic and more and more chaotic. So Saul says to the priest, withdraw your hand. In effect, what he's saying is stop praying for us. Interesting thing. Stop praying for us. And And he immediately then like shuts down the priestly prayer. It's the only time in the Old Testament where somebody does this. He shuts down the service of the priests out of his impatience to go engage the enemy. Now, we don't know exactly what his motivation was. Maybe, maybe he was concerned as a dad knowing that, well, there's only two guys missing. They must be the ones fighting in the camp of the Philistines. I need to go over there and help him, right? Like I could see that. Could be a good motive. Could be a bad motive. Like, man, like God, God took away my... God said, my kingdom's going to be taken away from me. Maybe it's going to go to Jonathan. I don't want Jonathan to get the glory. I want to get out there. Maybe. Right? We don't know. Could be positive, negative motivations, whatever. Maybe he just doesn't want to lose a military opportunity. 
But what we do know is this. We do know that, that he believed that God was irrelevant to what he was about to do because he was willing to shut down the prayer um, so he could go do it. You know, Saul's position was that God was not relevant to the things that he was facing that day. So what does he do? Starting in verse 20. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was great confusion. Now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously, who went up with them all around the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill countries of Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled, even they also pursued them closely in battle. So the Lord delivered Israel that day, and this battle spread beyond Beth-Avon. So we have another map where they went and attacked um, all the way up to Beth Avon. So what happens is they engage them at Michmash. The, the Philistine army, the red, dotted red line, is being routed and flees up to Beth Avon. And the, Jonathan and the, and the armies of Saul are pursuing him all the way up there. And God gives them this great victory all the way up to Beth Avon. But one of the interesting things that happens is, is it says that, that this army that Saul needed, like, instantly was provided. Like, apparently, a lot of the people that had left Saul had actually deserted and joined the Philistine army because it talks about the Hebrews that were with the Philistines. That some of the, that they decided to turn on the Philistines and join Saul. It says that the people that were hiding in the holes in the ground all over the, all over the countryside, they decided to join in. And so everybody grabbed their pitchforks and came running. And so this kind of like God put together this army of Israel and they routed them all the way up to Beth Avon. And there was this great victory. And it says, and the Lord delivered Israel that day. There's this kind of initiative of Jonathan and there's this great victory. But there's a darker side to the story that we get into next. This is where the honey comes in, where we get into next. And let's, let's look starting at verse 24. Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under an oath, first to be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies, so none of the people tasted food. So this is a flashback now, like we're flashing back in time, and he's talking about something that had happened before they had gone to attack. And what he's saying is that Saul, is that when Saul rallied his troops together, so this happens, I think, probably right after he shuts down the priest, after, right after he shuts down the priest and he's trying to rally his troops together to go like attack the Philistines, he puts them all under this curse. And a curse is like something that if you, where there's only negative if you break it. There's nothing positive to it. It's only negative, right? If anybody eats any food before I have avenged myself on my enemies going to cost him his life i think is what like this curse is going to be upon him that reveals a lot about saul so first of all like that language he doesn't even mention the lord right saul's forgotten who he is he's forgotten if he ever knew that he was he was simply a king that operated under the true king of israel that the people of israel belonged to the lord and and the enemies of israel were the enemies of the lord and saul made it all about himself i'm going to avenge myself on my enemies so he's, he becomes completely self-consumed in this thing. He, he's got this pride. And then he looks at the people of God, and the people of God aren't people that he's there to serve as their king, but people that are, that are to serve him. And he puts them under this curse saying, if any of you eat food before my vengeance is exacted, it's going to cost you your life. So he cuts off the prayer of God to put the people under a curse. 
and they go and attack the enemy, and God in his grace does deliver them. But the story gets more complicated. Verse 25, And all the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, forest, behold, there was a flow of honey. But no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. So there's this expression, like, that there's honey. So they enter into the forest as they're pursuing the Philistines, and they're tired. Like, I used to work at a jail, and like a couple times a year, we would have to do defensive tactics instruction. And part of our defensive tactics instruction was like, one of the things we had to do was get sprayed in the face by pepper spray, and then run like 50 yards, and then punch this bag for like 30 seconds, you know? And has anybody ever been in like a a fight that lasted like 10 minutes? 10 minutes? (laughs) But like, I mean, the first time I did defensive tactics, I'm thinking, I'm Mike Tyson, right? I'm going to punch this bag. Like, even without getting sprayed in pepper spray, like, punching a bag for, like, 30 seconds as hard as you can because you're, like, is exhausting. Like, boxers, like, they are in amazing shape because it is exhausting if nobody's ever doing it. And here you have the men of Israel pursuing probably, like, five miles from Michmash to Beth-Avon, pursuing. They're not 100% sure where Beth-Avon is, but that's why the question mark. But pursuing, like, in this fight for their life like all the way up to Beth Avon and they're getting exhausted and they enter into this forest and there's honey on the ground and, and it says that there's a flow of honey which is this echo back to the Old, Te- like to the Old Testament back to, or previously where God speaks about the promised land as being a land flowing with milk and honey like it's, this, it's reminiscent of, this, of what the people of Israel did when they entered the land, that God was going to bring them into the land. He was going to drive out their enemies before them. He was going to provide for them. So the author is telling us so there's this provision of God, like just laying there on the ground without any bees that they could be, nourish themselves with like as they're pursuing the Philistines. And nobody touches it because of the oath, right? Verse 27. But Jonathan had not heard when his father put the people under the oath. Why? Because he was killing the Philistines. Therefore, he put the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. You know, he was like low blood sugar at this point in time. He's beginning to get like, like you know, you're about to pass out. The honey's there. He takes the honey. He, t- he takes it. His eyes brighten like he comes back. Verse 28, and one of the people answered and said, your father strictly put the people under oath saying, cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. There's an expression like they're exhausted, right? Jonathan's the only one that ate honey and everybody's just exhausted. Verse 29, then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much more if only the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they have found. For now the slaughter among the Philistines has not been great. He's like, because, because they were, it says they were hard pressed because they hadn't eaten any food. And like, they're having a hard time keeping up with the Philistines because of this curse that Saul put them under. And like, God was wanting to deliver them from the Philistines. And they're, it's, they're just like forcing themselves forward with every step, like coming to this point of exhaustion. And they just need some food to get their blood sugar back up. And Saul wouldn't let them. It goes on, verse 31. Another map. And they struck the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ahijalon, or Ajalon, and the people were very weary. So Beth Avon is about 20 miles from Ajalon. So not only are they fighting the entire way, but they have to go like probably over the course of the day, like 25 to 28 miles in this battle. And so by the time they get to uh, Ajalon, it says that they were very weary now. 
Now it's beyond like sense, right? Like they're just completely exhausted. And night, we find out later in the text that, that like the sun set, verse 32. So now the curse was over in verse 32. And the people rushed greedily upon the spoil and took sheep and ox and calves and slew them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. It's this gruesome scene where like the people of Israel are like so starving at this point in time that as soon as the sun set, like any animal that was near them, they just killed it and just started eating it. It doesn't even sound like they cooked it. You know, and for a Jewish person, like, in fact, it goes clear back to Genesis chapter 9. In Genesis chapter 9, God made this prohibition for, for eating uh, meat with the blood in it. It says this. It says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it from require it and from man from his fellow man i will require a reckoning for the life of man whoever sheds the blood of man by it man his blood shall be shed for god made man in his own image what he's saying there is that it's not it's like survivor blood represents your life and when your blood's gone so is your time in this game you know what i'm talking about anybody watch survivor it's a flame there you you guys are good christians you don't watch tv okay God's saying, like, blood represents your life, and, and um, life is so precious to me that I don't want you to eat meat with, the, with like, the life in it as, like, this, as this way to, like, value life. And then he makes this statement that if you spill man's blood, like, in an unjust way is, is the implication as you look at the context, like, you know, you're guilty of, like, attacking the very image of God, and there is no price higher to pay. If that happens, right? So there's, this is going to come, become relevant here in just a minute when we, as we go through the story. But Saul, as he sees the people eating the flesh with the blood, which is symbolic of like devaluing life, um, says this, verse 35. No, verse 30, 33. Then they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, you have acted treacherously. Roll a great stone to me today. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, each one of you bring me his ox and his sheep and slaughter it here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So all the people that night brought each one of his ox with him and slaughtered it there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. And it was the first altar that he built to the Lord. So Saul builds this, brings this rock and makes it an altar and, and it's there that they're slaying the animals so that they can like, let the dra- blood drain properly of it and that people can take it and go eat. And Saul is like indignant, kind of like self-righteously indignant, like you have acted treacherously today. Right? Like he, he responds in this kind of anger to the people and he, he places himself as the solution to that problem. And as soon as like he solves this kind of religious problem of eating meat, he immediately moves on to the next thing. And look what he, look what he does. Verse 36, then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and take spoil among them until the morning light and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. So the, so the priest said, let us draw near to God here. So it's interesting. So as soon as Saul takes care of the religious problems, he's like, all right, let's go now and let's attack the Philistines again. And then the priest is like, hey, um, we, I got interrupted last time. Let's pray to the Lord this time, Right. Let's seek like, like God's will and seek his blessing. Let's pray this time. Don't you hate that? Like when you've got a plan 
and you've got a way to solve something, and you're about to implement it, and then somebody has the audacity to bring up, like, oh, maybe God's relevant to this thing, and maybe we should pray to him. Like, that happens to me, and I'm like, oh, I'm such a bad pastor, right? Like, anybody else that ever happens to? Man, that's the most admission I've gotten from anybody. Uh, Like, more people have done that than watch Survivor, so I'm not sure what that says about us. So the priest is like, hey, maybe we should pray to God here since we didn't do it back there. And so they do. Verse 37. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down at the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him on that day. You know, that's an allusion back to when Samuel was warning the people of Israel about how bad their kings would be. And he says, their kings will be so bad that you'll cry out to the Lord and the Lord will not answer you on that day, is what he said to them. This is being applied to Saul. It's like this foreshadowing of like, Saul is this king that is going to lead you to a place of disobedience to the Lord and crying out to the Lord, but the Lord will not answer you because your heart had been moved so far from him. And Saul's the guy that's going to take you there. God did not answer him. Like, so Saul in front of everybody seeks God's, God's counsel and God turns his back on him and he's not with silence. And then Saul immediately responds like, there was, there's no self-reflection because this whole problem has arrived because of, the, because of the foolish curse that, people, that Saul put his people under. Like it's Saul's fault that Everything, that, everything that's transpiring is transpiring. Saul has zero self-reflection. He has zero humility. He has zero like, ability, like willingness to look at himself. And look what he does. Um, verse 38. And Saul said, draw near here, all you chiefs of the people, and investigate and see how this sin has happened today. He interprets correctly, like God's silence to him, as a sin problem. But he assumes it's where everywhere else, right? Like, it's got to be one of you. Can't be me, because I'm the self-righteous Saul, king of Israel. It's got to be one of you. And he goes on. For as the Lord lives, he makes another, like, vow, which is kind of foolish. He just keeps doubling down on his stupidity. For as the Lord lives, who delivers Israel, though it is Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. But not one of all the people answered him. So not only did God, like, like respond to Saul with silence, but when Saul, like, kind of responds in a self-righteous, like, condemnation of everybody and asks who, like, whose fault it was that this was happening, nobody says a word. The picture that we have is like Saul just standing there, like isolated and alone, and his people not like showing any allegiance to him, the God of Israel not showing any allegiance to him, and Saul just being isolated in his sin. Continues. Verse 41, Therefore Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, Give a perfect lot, um, Oh, no, I'm sorry, verse 40. Then he said to Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, my son, will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do whatever seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, give perfect lot. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, and the people escaped. And Saul said, cast lots between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. What Saul's doing there is, he, is he's kind of hedging his bets. I'm like, okay, Jonathan and I are going to be over here, and all y'all are going to be over there, Right? 
And, and I'm thinking, like, in Saul's mind, like, Jonathan, clearly God's with Jonathan because Jonathan's the one that, like, routed the Philistines single-handedly. And clearly he's with me because I'm the king of Israel. And so it must be one of you. So let's just divide the line right here, and we'll cast lots. If it's one of your fault, like, it's like throwing dice. Like, it'll point to you. And if it's one of our fault, it'll point to us. So he throws dice, and surprise, surprise, it points to one of them. And he throws dice again, and it points to Jonathan because Jonathan was the vow breaker. Saul pounds. Verse 43, then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him and said, I indeed tasted a little honey with the end of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I must die. It's different ways you could read that. And I think like the, there's some clues in there. He says, I just took a little bit of honey on the tip of my staff is what he's saying. He's like, you know, my capital offense, dad, is that in the middle of this battle, when we were all exhausted, not even knowing your decree, I took a tiny little bit of honey and I took a taste. That surely must be a capital offense. Go ahead and kill me. Right? I think there's, there's like sarcasm here because I think, he's, I think he's rebuking Saul in this. Like everybody knows it's Saul's fault. And Jonathan's even revealing how stupid Saul is by making this a big deal out of this fact that, there's, that he took a tiny little bit of honey in the middle of this battle and he didn't even know about the vow. And what did Saul say? You must surely die. Outs. This is why that Genesis 9 thing comes in. Like, he was so concerned in his self-righteous indignation towards his people about them eating their blood. And he wanted to make sure, like, all the religious boxes were checked. And yet... He had zero personal righteousness because when, when it came time to either admit that he had made a foolish vow or kill his own son, he decided he would rather shed the blood of an innocent person than admit his own, like, weakness. Like, Saul just continues to spiral down and spiral down and spiral down. His religious activities didn't, wouldn't, wouldn't deliver him. His self-righteousness wouldn't deliver him. His earnest vows won't deliver him. He's just stuck in this place where, where he's going to just keep doubling down on his mistake. Verse 45, but the people said to Saul, must Jonathan die who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan and he did not die. So the, the people of Israel make a vow, and they're like, you know what, if you, there's no way you're going to touch a hair of his head, Saul, because he's the one that's been on God's side this whole day. So the people of Israel actually rebel against Saul. Saul's completely isolated. And then the conclusion, verse, 30, verse 46, then Saul went from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. You know, it's a, it's a crazy story. But there's, I think there's some, some really important applications for us. You know, first of all, just, if we don't, I, won't read it, I won't read them. I, but in verses 47 through uh, 52, there's this, there's this list of the accounts of, of all the victories that Saul had um, during his reign as king of Israel, even after this. And, in, you know, it's interesting that just because, like, like Saul was actually had, had lots of military success, even today was a military success. But just because he had a military success doesn't mean that God was with him. 
Like as Americans, we're really pragmatic people. And we think like if, if something's working, God must be on his side. You know what I'm talking about? Like today was a great battle. Right? They won a great victory. Was God on Saul's side? Like because his, his heart was far from the Lord. He wasn't like depending upon the Lord. He was just depending upon religion and his own power and all of these other things. And there's this really tragic statement at the very end of the two. Now, the war against the Philistines was severe all the days of Saul. You know, back in chapter 9, you can look these up later. Chapter 9, verse 16. God had promised that he would deliver the people of Israel from the Philistines at the hand of Saul. And here we find out that Saul's disobedience, like, diminished the victory. Like, by God bringing the entire army of the Philistines up to, to Michmash that day... He was serving them up on a platter for them to do away with the Philistine threat once for all. What looked like catastrophe was actually this huge opportunity. And because Saul's foolish vow and his people's weakness that was caused by it, like the the victory was diminished. And the the Philistine army, like they were defeated, stayed intact. And they ended up like plaguing the nation of Israel the rest of Saul's reign. And in fact, Saul dies at the hands of the Philistine army. All because what? I think it all started with him not believing God was relevant for the things that he faced that day. Prayers are relevant. My obedience to the Lord's irrelevant. My trust in him's irrelevant. Like we live in a really secular age where I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can go through a lot of the stuff that we face every single day with this like kind of posture that Maybe God is not particularly relevant to us. We don't have the faith of Jonathan. We get overwhelmed by our crises. We, we fail to like do those things that God would call us to do, all because we think it like, rely, like relies upon us, and we don't have the strength to do it, so God can't do it either. God is not hindered to save by many or by few. He doesn't see our problems the same way we see them. Like, he simply calls us to, like, trust and faith and confidence in him. And I think a lot of us, like, as, that are Christians, like, probably fail to, like, kind of like Saul, fail to, like, experience everything that God would have for us just because we just walk the path of the flesh instead of walking the path of, of faith and trusting the Lord. And our, and our lives just become this kind of, like, empty shell where we just keep doubling down on our foolishness. And, and um, our lives just kind of have this tragic, like, end. And the Lord has so much better for us where he, he pours out his spirit upon us. He calls us to, like, obedience and faith and joy. And, like, Hannah would pray this, like, blessing that comes from living under his rule. And yet I think we exchange it for religion and zealousness, and, and self-righteousness, and self-sufficiency. I mean, all the things that took Saul down. You know, and some of you here, like, probably have never come to believe in the truth of the gospel, because, you know, like, thinking back to Jonathan, like, the, like the plan of the gospel is probably the foolishness, fo- most foolish plan, like, in the history of the world. Like, it's, you're like, what? Did he just say that? Yes, I said that. Like, I'll explain in a minute. 
Like the things that we celebrated last, last week, that God himself became a man, that he lived this perfect life, that he died a sacrificial death to, to atone and, and absorb the wrath that I deserve and was buried in the ground and was raised from the dead three days later and now sits at God's right hand. Are you serious? Like, right? There's something about that story that's like, really? Turn with me to, well, actually I have it up. Chapter one. He says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Like the the history of the Bible, the story of the Bible is story after story after story after story of like the weak being made strong, the weak putting foreign armies to flight, the the barren giving birth to children, the the virgin giving a birth to a child, the, right? Like Gideon's army being whittled down so he could overthrow like the invaders, like Jonathan and his shield bearer, like putting an entire army to flight, like the the story of the Bible, like, and it reaches its culmination in this foolish plan that God himself would come and die in our place. And, and, and it confounds, because it, in some ways it's like, really? Like, it's not my self-righteousness that saves me. It's not my efforts that saves me. It's not my zeal that saves me. It's not my religious deeds that save me. Nope. What did Jonathan do? He believed God. And he responded to his promises. And he was saved. To us who are being saved, this message of the cross is God's power. So I just want to challenge you. If you're you're one of those people that that think that salvation is somehow dependent upon you, that the message of the cross is that God took your place. God himself became a man, Jesus Christ, died judgment for you on the cross and raised from the dead, to like demonstrate to you that he has power over sin and death and, and whatever enemies you face. And all that he asks on you is that you believe. If you, it's, it's believing in that message in a way that moves you to action. That's what faith is. Like moves you to action to live this life of dependence upon the Lord and trust upon the Lord and, and um, love for the Lord. You know, like, what are you missing out on? It's this foolish plan that demonstrates the power of God, and yet it's, it's God's plan for the salvation of the world. So, Marv, why don't you come up to close us? I'm, I'm like, way over time, but why don't you come up to close us? But I just want to, I just want to, like, reassure you that if you're in that mode where you're not sure if God can be trusted to save whatever you're facing, like, the story of Jonathan is, is that he absolutely can. Like, don't resort back to all of the things that, that Saul depended upon. But, but trust in the Lord and pursue him, seek him, and experience his, his deliverance this morning. Father, I just thank you for um, your beauty and that you are worthy of our trust and our loyalty and our devotion. And I just pray that what we just sang wouldn't be empty religious words, but that we would seek your face and that we would seek you and we would increasingly live lives of dependence and trust and faith that um, that moves us to action and um, to be a part of your work in this world. And, and Father, I just pray that you would rescue us from the foolishness of depending upon ourselves um, and help us to uh, just live as your people um, as you would have us to here in McMinnville and represent you well. Pray these things in Jesus' name.
Amen.